we got a real simple plan. One man, one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. I think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, here's Reese Davis. The fatal flaw of Brock Bowers. The Big Ten and the ACC ready to start showing off just a little bit as well. And what is your favorite college football trophy? Because it's not really that long until they start playing for it. And we are coming to your city if your city is Charlotte, North Carolina. This is the College Game Day podcast for Tuesday, July 25th. Reese Davis and the legendary Pete Thamel alongside. So, uh, Pete, let's, let's start. Let's just get this out of the way. For, for two years, I've watched Brock Bowers play, and I think this guy is perfect. He's an unbelievable tight end. He's a phenomenal athlete. He could be a great running back. They give it to him on the uh, tight ends or H-backs around, and he goes 75 yards for touchdowns, and then he shatters the entire illusion. The guy doesn't like grits. Who doesn't like grits? Me. Now you shatter the illusion, too. How can you not like grits? I mean, they're, they're delicious like, and healthy. They're like they're just sort of like glorified mush. Like no, they're, not they're like, like that's what they serve probably. in Goodnight Moon, which I read a lot these days. <laughs> like a bowl of mush. Like that's it. It's no. just a bowl of mush. It, it, no, it allegedly takes probably. on the flavor of of what you have with it. But just why don't you just have what you have with it and not need but, the? Wait, because nobody wants to eat just a bowl of butter and salt. You need something to <laughs> soak up the butter and salt. So. <laughs> But I will, thinking about this, I I think something I should extend Brock a little grace in this regard because he's from Napa, right? Yeah. And the hoity-toity people in Napa talk a lot about refined palates and the piquant aftertaste and all of that kind of stuff and and the finish of the flavor. I'm just going to give Brock the same courtesy that – probably people from Napa wouldn't extend to a guy like me and say that he just doesn't have, and you too, for that matter, your palate's just not refined enough to appreciate the glory of a great bowl of grits. I will say this in Brock's defense, uh, been around him a few times now. He doesn't exactly come off uh, as a like hint of oak guy. You know what I mean? Like swirling <laughs> his wine, uh, you know, saying it as he, like he's later notes. It because he's at Georgia. And they don't let anybody in Napa that's not one of those guys, I don't think, right? But he's just yeah. faking it because he's in Athens now. Yeah, no, I, he does. He, he's pretty, un, he's a pretty unassuming guy. Like if he walked in, now he doesn't have a Southern accent, but. Um, he, he needs to work on that too. Yes. He, he was a, he was delightful to talk to. He's a nice kid. He didn't have a particular ton of interest in that. Like uh, he's not the chattiest guy that, that we've ever been around. Again, that's not a, look, it's media day, right? So some dudes come in and like, you're like, wow, like Michael Wright from Vanderbilt last year is at Mississippi State. Now you're like, that guy could be the mayor of Nashville. Like mm-hmm. no problem. Mm-hmm. Some guys come in and you're like, wow, Brock Bowers came in and it was like, he executed his homework assignment and passed the class and, uh, and moved on. He was nice. He he was polite. He was engaging, but he was just kind of like unassuming, I would I would say. So the, he certainly didn't come off like he was going to talk about the talons or, um, you know, the the the, the, the toad crushed grapes. Like there was no arrogance to him uh, to him at all. Um, yeah, but he just uh, he just didn't like grits. And uh, Brock, we're here for you as uh, as 
one of my colleagues, a former colleague, used to say, uh, Brock, we kid because we care. So anyway, yes, uh, we'll get back to the SEC in a little bit. A couple other media days starting. Uh, ACC's cranking up. Big Ten's getting underway. Uh, Harbaugh is going to be the king of the Big Ten, which is left uh, is going to leave Ohio State a little salty, even though Clemson is the reigning champion in the ACC. Uh, there are a lot of people, um, myself included, who is tempted, if not leaning, to Florida State as the favorite. Although they'll probably play for the championship anyway. What are you What are you wanting to hear? Who are you looking forward to hearing from from those two conferences over these media days? Well. I, uh, you know, am curious to hear uh, how much Dabo is reflective on what went wrong with their offense at Clemson and how much he how he sees the identity different. Now, look, one thing I learned, um, I'm about seven days of media days in now, is that like nobody's going to give you their playbook. Right. Um, and as your uh, completely prescient, far too chillingly accurate media day encapsulation to start the last pod revealed, everyone's more aggressive. Like, you know, like we're going to yeah. take more vertical shots. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I want that new coordinator who's just going to, we're just going to check down, run between the tackles and really <laughs> play conservative. <laughs> um, but I do feel like there's going to be a, a, some new flair and some new nuance to the Clemson offense. I'm excited to see it with Garrett Riley. I'd be curious for uh, for, for Dabo what what that looks like, and I, you know, and we're going to get to this in a little bit. I, I'd be curious for Mac Brown. That's it's been an interesting program there. They now have Drake May, certified top five pick, new identity on offense with Chip Lindsey and Phil Longo out. Um, they've done everything right at North Carolina except really win big. And you would think there's opportunity right now to do that. So I'd just be curious. Now, look, Max going to be, yeah, Max going to eat three bowls of grits up there, right? He's going to be folksy and wonderful and uh, in that. But I just do I just do wonder, as he's in his twilight and, uh, you know, is this the kind of season where he goes out on a high note and takes a job in administration at USC and hangs around and is Mac Brown for forever there? You know, so I just, I, I'm curious about that aspect of it. And again, like, um, I'm probably less curious about Florida State because I did their spring game and I feel like I know mm. what they have. And I'm bullish on I'm bullish on Florida State, uh, uh, relentlessly bullish on Florida State. They have SEC level depth on the O line and SEC level depth on the D line, and that's obviously been the historic separator of the last generation between uh, the SEC and everybody else. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to be great on the offensive line necessarily, but. Earlier this week and kind of going through some minutia and working on this chart that I do every year in the preseason on teams, going back through them a little bit, 206 career starts on the offensive line among all of their guys. Who who has that? I don't know that I've ever heard of that yeah. before. I mean, that's a that again, that doesn't mean just because you've played a lot that you're going to be dominant. What it does mean is that you reduce the likelihood for busts and you reduce the likelihood with the number of options that you have there of putting people in positions where they maybe is not their strong suit playing a playing a guard at tackle and so forth um you know all of those things really really interesting to me along with the improvement of jordan travis and the return of jared verse um I think Clemson made a wise move, obviously, on offense because they've had two years of mediocre offense. Last year, their yards per play ranked just behind Cal and Rice. 
That's ungood if you're trying to win a national championship. I I think Florida State's the favorite in that conference. And I look, I think Cade Klubnick is talented and all of that, but you know, there were there was some spottiness last year, even from him. Everybody rolled it at, at DJ Uyunglele's feet. And I'm not sure now he didn't he I'm not trying to say it wasn't any of his fault. He didn't play his best. There's no question about that. But you know, I'm I'm more bullish on Florida State than Clemson, and think that Clemson, much like I opined about Alabama, Clemson might be a year away from from their best. Now, I I expect that with the way they're recruiting and the change on offense in another year with Club Nick and Riley, and Clemson may be great this year, but I think next year uh, you may be talking preseason number one type stuff if they followed up with another good recruiting class. Interesting. Um, so first of all, that 206 stat um, is is an amazing stat. I remember Justin, Her- just for point of comparison, uh, Justin Herbert's line has last year at Oregon had over 150 starts returning. Calvin Throckmorton and the likes. <laughs> and that was like a number that was, you know, echoed from the highest. Like, oh my gosh, 150 returning starts on the O-line. Now, I think some of the Florida State starts are elsewhere. So that's no, the, no a lot of them are, yes, but yes. Uh, yeah, a ton of them yeah. are. They're not all at Florida State. Yes. I should have been They're, clear on that. Yeah, yeah. no, no. The, the, the caveat to yeah. that number is only available almost like because mm-hmm. guys have played uh, so many snaps in in uh, in, in so many different uh, so many different places. Uh, the other thing that number shows is we have really good people helping us reach the good people at ESPN Stats and Info because that's like that's the kind of number that would take somebody like me three days to uh, three days and like a lot of like one two carry the one. So uh, yeah, Marissa so. Oh, I do, I do want to give credit where credit's due. Okay. That I, I go through all the magazines. That one is a, that's a Phil Steele number. I don't okay. give Phil credit for that. Right. That was a nope. number out of yes. Phil's magazine. Yeah, that's yeah. good. And I'd use that number on the spring game that, and somebody from stats and info had given it to oh, Okay. Me. Um, well, maybe, it, maybe it, Phil it, got it, it from them. I don't know. No, I doubt Phil got it from there, yeah. but like that's, <laughs> that, yeah, Phil, Phil does his own, his own. Oh, calculus. Yes, he does. Yes, Plenty he does. of it. So, yeah. uh, but I just wanted to give up. Cause I remember when I got that number, I was like, wow, I'm going to use this a lot. Like it was just yeah. one of those where it's like, this is a offensive line. such a hard position to quantify, right? Mm-hmm. It's quantified mostly by failure or success of somebody else. So in, in a way, like having a having a way to distill the experience of the group or it's or it's quantified by weight. Right. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, it's really that's it, I've, I just found I, I've always found that stat to be uh, helpful. It's like a reliability uh, barometer mm-hmm. in uh, in in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, one of the early September games that people probably aren't focused on right now because there are some juicy games week one and two, especially is uh, when Florida State does go to Clemson um, early, early, early in that year. We've talked a little bit about that this this offseason, but I do feel like that is uh, an interesting collision of a program on the rise versus a program wanting to stay on the top. Right. That yeah. that game could be a little bit of a little bit of a pivot point if Florida State's able to go there and win. Um, I'm going to say changing of the guard, but it would certainly uh, it would certainly thrust Florida State into the uh, into the driver's seat in the uh, in the ACC. this year. Well, but, you know, the way they're doing it, too, unlike uh, unlike the previous years, you'll have the opportunity to see it again. So it won't be a be all end all. But the one thing that it will be, I think, for Florida State is that you'll know then, and maybe Clemson too, but especially Florida State because they will have already played LSU, 
you'll know when they walk out of Clemson that night whether they're in the college football playoff hunt or not. Yeah, um, a you know, even with the loss, if they've beaten LSU, they're fine. You know, they're you know, they just have to win the rest of their games and win the ACC. But if they don't beat LSU and they lose that one, even winning the ACC in all likelihood would would put them on the outside looking in. Unless, and we might have touched on this earlier too, unless you have a thing where LSU kicked a 50 yard field goal to beat them and, you know, and Clemson beats them with a late touchdown or something like that. And then they come back and win the ACC. Then that, then that's obviously different. But just from the context of winning big games and that type of thing, you'll probably have a really good idea of whether Florida State's in it for the long haul or not. Anyone else you think can sort of bounce up in the ACC race? Is there any sort of uh, tier two team that you think can, uh, you know, NC State was that team last year um, with Devin Leary that a lot of people thought could uh, go. And now look at Brennan, Brennan Armstrong, and you think it will be the 2021 version of Brennan Armstrong uh, there. Is there any other uh, Miami? Obviously, you never I never always cautious of being skeptical of talent. And they have mm-hmm. clearly compiled talent. Their offense actually can't be worse than it was last year. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anybody else uh, up and down the coast? Pitt's always solid. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. I, you mentioned them earlier. I'm gonna go with North Carolina simply because they have the best player in the mm-hmm. conference, one of the best players in the country, maybe the you know either the best or the second best player in the country, and you know at least at quarterback. So I, I'll go North Carolina. Um, as the team that potentially could upset things there. And they've got a lot of guys back. They, too, have a veteran offensive line, a lot of guys who've played a lot of uh, ball in their careers. And it's always a good place to start at quarterback with the way the game has has changed and evolved over the last few years. And and I don't think as, as good as Drake May was in the early part of the season, I think he would probably tell you he didn't finish the year um, quite the way that he would have liked. Uh, wasn't as sharp, and I think there's opportunity to show some uh, growth and improvement uh, from him this year, which I fully expect to see. Yeah, I, I do too, and and I really feel like you know we are overdue, in in my opinion, Reese, to start seeing some of the dividends of this high high end recruiting under Mac Brown. Like it has flashed, <clears throat> but we have but we have not seen it consistently so um they obviously have Devontae walker at, at receiver who uh, who came from kent state and is getting some early draft buzz they have nate mccollum who who was a very good receiver at georgia tech who who comes over uh jj jones has been really productive uh really productive for them um so you know i really feel like some of some of that just really has to start uh you know, the, the stars in the rankings have to start becoming the stars on the field, whether it's uh, Cedric Gray, the, the, the middle linebacker, who was really highly regarded, Miles Murphy, the defensive tackle, who was a huge recruit for them. Um, it's just a it's it's a little bit of time for, for, for everything to come together. And I'm very curious, and maybe this is a good segue, and maybe this isn't, uh, just how they hold up against South Carolina. Because I just think mm-hmm. for that program to lose that game week one would just would be pretty pretty deflating for them for where they crushing, should be. It would be crushing for the season. It would be crushing for the perception of the ACC. Although certainly Florida State could get it back. 
Um, because as, as high as South Carolina was to finish last year, even with the bowl loss to, to Notre Dame, but by, you know, beating Tennessee and then beating Clemson, coming back to do it, Rattler looked great. And then you have this, you know, this mass exodus of, of key components to the transfer portal, and you don't have a lot of guys coming back. You know, for them. So if if South Carolina wins that game, I think I agree with you. Doesn't mean the season's over and weird things happen opening day, but it would be it would be quite the punch in the uh, lower abdominal region if uh, if South Carolina beats North Carolina in that opening day in Charlotte. I, I think there's an argument. Obviously, the barometer for the quality of the ACC is going to start with Florida State LSU, right? I really feel like no game is going to control perception more than that early in the season. But I think if there's one team that could really help sway the perception of the ACC, it is North Carolina because they have a solid SEC opponent and then they have a solid Big Ten opponent in, in Minnesota two weeks later at home. Um, and I am not going to overlook App State because App State scored 72 points and <laughs> lost somehow last year in that game. Wasn't that the game where I believe they scored like the most points ever scored in a fourth quarter and a loss? Now, this is yeah. all from the top of my head, and there's been a lot of games between. But like, so in no way, shape or form, um, am I going to overlook uh, am I going to overlook App State in that uh, in that contest? So that's again. Two and a half, right? Like winning, winning against a Sun Belt team on the ACC network at home doesn't doesn't exactly get you a parade. But here's the thing: if they start one and two, or God forbid, start zero and three, because they probably should have lost App State on the road last year. Like it's all three and zero to zero and three is all on the table. Let's just start there. Yeah. All right. Like this isn't. East Sheboygan Technical College that they have coming in. It's a Sun Belt school with a rich history of beating both UNC and uh, and South Carolina in recent years, and many many others over the years. So, I do think if it's mid September, UNC's three and zero in those three games, Reese. The outlook for the ACC is a lot sunnier than it has been um, in some years. In some years, there's been some pretty grisly Septembers where people are, you know, kicking them out of the playoff before, uh, um, what is it, Flag Day? Uh, or yeah. uh, what's, the, what's the early, uh, Veterans Day? Is that early? No, early October? What's the, what's the long weekend in early October? Columbus yeah, Day. That's no, Veterans Day is in November. Columbus Day is in mid-October. Columbus Day. Thank you. And then there's, and then, and then there's Labor Day, which if things don't go well for the <laughs> ACC, <laughs> it, it yes. might be there. It, you know, looking back, uh, you mentioned Appalachian State, and forgive me if you said this directly and I overlooked it, of the people they've beaten, North Carolina. You know, yeah. Just, oh, yeah. just a few yeah. years ago. Yeah, was, so when Drax lost App to State. them already. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm looking this up really fast here. I, I've never seen this before. It's the most astounding statistic of last season. App State scored 40 points in the fourth quarter and lost. Yeah. You want to talk about mind bending? 40 points in the fourth quarter. That's like a month for Iowa. And they <laughs> scored 40 points. <laughs> in the fourth quarter and lost the game. I'm fairly certain that's never happened in the history of college football. No, I, yeah, it's a, that was a record. As I recall, it did not bode well for our friend, uh, Gene Chizik, the defensive coordinator there at, uh, at North Carolina. So there'll, there'll be a little heat there to improve the defense and they'll be tested uh, right off, right off the bat from South Carolina, who, 
you know, despite all of its transfer portal issues, they were able to get some guys too. And then they've got Rattler. And, you know, what are you hearing from your scout, uh, your scout friends about the potential for Spencer Rattler maybe um, reviving his professional interest, which was very high when he was at Oklahoma? So I would say that I, I would spend some time with Spencer at SEC Media Day. And uh, he had good perspective on it. He was he was reflective, and he really feels like the adversity is going to help shape him. He called it a blessing um, for some of the, the 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 yo-yo that he's gone through. So think about it this way: he was the top quarterback recruit in the country. If you go like pro style, dual threat, or whatever, um, coming out, he backed up Jalen Hurts, who played in the Super Bowl last year. He lost his job to Caleb Williams after his redshirt freshman season, backing up Jalen, who won the Heisman Trophy. He went to South Carolina. He got benched twice in the Texas game. Once he came back and won the first time. The second time, he, he lost the job uh, for good. Went to South Carolina, sputtered. I think he had eight interceptions the first six games. And then completely, it, it's been a remarkable like career of extremes. And then along the way there, he was the Heisman favorite. He was the number pick in the draft favorite. So I asked him this, Shane Beamer, this, and I have talked to some scouts about this. Scouts are never going to sour on arm talent, Right. Like they're just like the arm talent is going to be the arm talent. Like Spencer Rattler will get drafted because he has a talented arm. Like it's just, it's just that simple. Um, And he looked to go out last year and um, you know, probably would have got picked somewhere in the fifth to seventh round range. Um, Maybe fourth, maybe a little higher, but like someone is going to, there are scouts right now that I know who are in love with that arm, right? There's just love for Spencer Rattler's arm. And if you take him in the third or fourth round and he ends up being an NFL starter, it's just an unbelievable bargain. And it's a, it's a really, it, or if he's like a high end backup, it's just really good financially mm-hmm. for your, for your franchise. So I do think if you say who has the most at stake as an individual position player in week one, I would say it's Spencer Rattler. Cause if he closes his season last year, beating top 10, Tennessee, beating top 10 Clemson playing well in the bowl against Notre Dame, and then beats Drake May head-to-head, I think he re-enters the first three-round pick conversation. Like, if he just slays North Carolina's defense, and let's face it, we've seen some North Carolina defenses get slayed the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, be it Jeans, be it Jay Batemans, there have been some defenses that have rolled over. Now, some of that had to do with the offense, right? The offense put them just in, you know, because Phil Longo played so fast, Um put them in, you know, in, in completely disadvantages, disadvantaged positions all the time. Um, that was supposed to even up a little bit. We didn't quite see all that last year, although it did get better as the year went on. Now it couldn't have got worse. So um, it will be interesting to see if Rattler and company can come out and if they hang 49 on them and win, um, that will be, you know, and that Saturday night primetime opening weekend, he, he could change his conversational paradigm. Now, if I had to guess right now where Spencer Rattler, it, you know, would go, I would say third or fourth round with a, with a solid season, but with a, with a season of what he was supposed to be. And if they make some noise and beat some people in the sec, he, he could go higher. Uh, you know, as Shane Beamer said, he played golf with an NFL GM and they talked about it for a while uh, this summer. And he was like, it's not like the guy forgot how to play football. Mm-hmm. And he's got a new offensive coordinator. Not that, you know, obviously, you know, Marcus Satterfield before 
was a good fit for him. Went back to go with Matt Rule at Nebraska. Got Dowell Loggins in, who has a, a lot of um, NFL experience. So we'll see. We'll see if that works. But you know what? I'm I'm most interested in there. A couple of years ago, I'm not a big fan of uh, the neutral sites for game day because often, often that leaves us with lackluster enthusiasm because you know there is there's not a natural gathering place that early before the game in Charlotte. Uh, in what would that have been 21 Clemson and Georgia opened the season there and they turned that notion completely upside down fantastic crowd electric atmosphere people now part of it was they were coming off COVID the restrictions were gone all of that kind of stuff so everybody was happy to you know um, be be doing normal things and but it was also you had Georgia and Clemson Here's the challenge. Let's see what North Carolina and South Carolina have to do to answer that, especially South Carolina, which, you know, prides itself on having a loyal, big, vociferous fan base. Let's see what you got. Let's see what you got in Charlotte. Yeah, I'm not worried about South Carolina. South Carolina fans are going to show like they drag their tails up a little bit. That's uh, that's okay well, though. Uh, they they drag their tails to watch bad ball for a lot of years there in Columbia. So now that they have Shane Beamer, things aligned, things going right, um, those schools aren't exactly uh, the best of friends. So I I do feel like uh, the Gamecock crew will show up. The challenge to me is the North Carolina fan base. Baby blue. Yeah. I feel like I feel like they'd much rather have brunch with like one of those Bloody Marys that has like a shrimp, bacon, and probably grits on it, right? Like, I just feel like that's more Carolina. Like, that that I don't I don't know if their fan base really wants to let it rip uh, for, for three hours. So I, this is my prediction. I predict 75% South Carolina fans there, and I predict it rocks. Okay. I hope you're right. Uh, the last time North Carolina fans, and were challenged. A little different atmosphere, for sure. But when they were having a difficult time in basketball last year, there was some concern about how they would show up for the morning college game day show hours before the game against Duke in basketball. And I'm going to give them credit, man. They showed up. They were excited. They were loud. I tend to agree with you with the overall perspective of maybe the uh, preferences of North Carolina fans to maybe uh, chill and be a bit more refined, but they showed up for for the basketball game and for the show before the basketball game several hours before, under very dire circumstances for their team. They ought to have a lot of excitement about this team. They've got um, maybe the maybe the best quarterback they've ever had. Not probably not even maybe the best quarterback they've ever had. Certainly in modern era. And they've got an opportunity in the ACC to make a big run with a with, you know, Hall of Fame level coach who would love to win another one at a place that's important to him. And here's the start of it. So let's get let's get jacked up and and see what you got. Anything you in the want big a quick 10? fun stat, Reese, on May yes, before I we do. close the book on that. North Carolina yeah. has never had a number one pick in the NFL draft. I believe Lawrence Not Taylor Lawrence went very Taylor. high and maybe number two. Yeah. And whoever got drafted ahead of him was a mistake <laughs> because Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> no matter I, how good he was, right? No yeah, matter, <laughs> yeah, it would have to be one of like five people, like Tom Brady being one of them to go ahead of Lawrence Taylor. But yeah, the uh, 
the UNC uh, the UNC program, a proud program that's produced a lot of a lot of really good NFL players, has never had a number one pick. So that's a little fun, little fundamental tension to roll with here. Oh, I've I've got it here. I thought this was right. I just confirmed it. Can you uh, do you have a good guess as to who was selected before Lawrence Taylor? So, it, like again, it's this a, is so a, uh, this is a big hint. It was the uh, it was the nineteen eighty one yep. nineteen eighty one NFL draft. Yeah. So I was four, um, maybe actually three and a half. Um, so and that somehow precludes you from studying history. Yeah. No. I yeah. I was a history minor, not major. <laughs> so. Uh, okay. And I, I actually did look this up doing a story on Sam Howell a couple of years ago because remember he was projected pretty yeah. high before things went sideways. Yeah. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to remember who the number one pick in the 1981 NFL draft is. I'm just not gonna know. I'll name drop here. My good friend, excellent person, great player, former Heisman Trophy winner, and alumnus of the University of South Carolina, George Rogers. Oh, how about that? How about that? I would not have got that. I would not have got that. Yes. George Rogers, fine football player, not greatest <laughs> at his position of all time, like Lawrence Taylor. Not a like there there are, yeah. there are a few, um, and I won't take us too far down this rabbit hole, but just looking at that in the in the nineteen eighty one NFL draft, among the top eight players, three of them went into the Hall of Fame. Lawrence Taylor, Kenny Easley, and Ronnie Lott. Wow. Um, there are some peculiar selections before each of those. George had a much better NFL career than than I think people give him credit for. He had over 7,000 yards rushing. Uh, and the same is true for the guy who went before Kenny Easley, Freeman McNeil, who was his teammate in college, UCLA. But um, EJ Jr., who was uh, you know also a really, really good player at Alabama, Rich Campbell and Hugh Green, who mm. darn near won the Heisman himself at Pittsburgh, all went ahead of Ronnie Lott. So uh, your latest your latest example of the draft being an inexact science yeah. and history not being kind, because even if you draft really, really good players, which, you know, Freeman McNeil and EJ Jr. And, you know, Hugh Green probably didn't have the pro career that he did in college, still a good player. If you if you if you leave a Hall of Famer sitting on the board behind you, uh, boy, history history frowns at you with your selection. You know, yeah. Is in a redraft is Taylor Lott a debate? That's a great question. Uh, and, and yeah, it's a little I th- early I think for me to have some like foot like. And now here's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what Lawrence Taylor's background looked like, right? Like you hear those stories of, you know, Belichick, right, he was yeah. the DC of the Giants and he would like show up like an hour before the game mysteriously. So like yeah, yeah. he brought some baggage with him and it's all well, well documented. And I'm certainly not trying to yeah. poke the ire of LT here. When we got that. Um, but yeah, you know, Lot obviously was a, you know, an unbelievable hall of fame, you know, pillar of consistency. I don't know how many like all pros for each. And I'm not looking at any of this stuff, but I just like, you know, yeah, you know, would, would there be an argument for a lot? I don't think that's outlandish, right? No, I don't think okay. so. I think yeah. you know, I think that's a perfectly reasonable, uh, reasonable take. We, you brought up Phil Longo, and that is one of the things that is going to be uh, really different about Luke Fickle taking over at Wisconsin is Longo moving his style of offense uh, 
um, to Wisconsin. Now, when you talk to Phil, as I know you have many times, he's, he's somebody I, I enjoy uh, talking with as well. You know, he, he's not going to uh, set aside and let you forget that he had, uh, you know, um, thousand-yard rushers and big-time running game at North Carolina, too. So it's not as if Wisconsin is abandoning the run for, you know, pure air raid, throw-at-every-play offense. But it is going to be a very different look for Wisconsin. And um, I think, you know, from the reports I've seen, Tanner Mordecai, who transferred from SMU and he started his career at Oklahoma, certainly well-versed in this offense, but scuffled a little bit in the spring as they were as they were getting uh, everything installed there. I've set it up this way. Do you think it's going to work at Wisconsin? It's interesting, right? Um, I want to say, and this is as of like two months ago, Penn State has two O-line recruits from the state of Wisconsin, right? So I bring that up only to say, there's some cultural shift here. Um, right. Wisconsin became Wisconsin by using its natural resources. Just in the same way Miami used speed to become a power. And USC used Southern California's recruiting base. Like, you you have to utilize your, your local resources in, in, in college football. It's there There is the occasional anomalous Nebraska that can go collect elsewhere. Even their walk-ons were their resource, right? So, so mm-hmm. Wisconsin, which played like a half century of terrible football, but had a great band and a good party, Barry Alvarez got there and formulated a game plan that really, really worked. Um, and they have probably outkicked their coverage for the past 30 years. If you have to look just, you know, compared to what, where the talent is locally, um, et cetera. So they have positioned themselves now as like, why Wisconsin and not Minnesota generally? Why Wisconsin to be better than Michigan State generally, right? Um, why Wisconsin and not Indiana? There's good players in Indiana. So you can kind of go through and, uh, you know, certainly they've been a lot better in Nebraska the last 15 years or so. So um, it's a roundabout way to say, there is a deviation from the tried and true game plan through multiple coaches, except Gary Anderson for that weird blip in the matrix, right? That um, that worked, really worked for the for the Badgers. And so I am curious to see how far they deviate from the game plan. And Luke Fickle is a defense first coach. He likes to run the ball. Um, so there are some philosophical, you know, loggerheads that are going to, that are going to happen here. So I'm very, I'm very curious about it. It's the most interesting Wisconsin has been, because even Wisconsin is really good. You know what they are, right? Like they're, Mm -hmm. you so um, now we don't know what they are. And I find that very, uh, I find that very intriguing. And now look, they cleaned up the portal. Their quarterback room is one of the higher end ones, you know, in the, in the big 10, like they, they have, they've done a really strong job uh, recruiting. It's not like they don't have any linemen coming, but mm-hmm. you know, the old, you know, the old sloggers from Sheboygan um, are maybe not going there now. Cause they're going to look a little different and that's okay. Like evolution is good. Here's where I'll leave it. Reese, is this going to be an evolution or a revolution? I think that's where I'm interested. Uh, I would I would say evolution because I don't think that Fickle is going to get too far from his roots and he's going mm-hmm. to have and his belief system and his philosophy of how football teams 
should look. They, you know, he always believed in being physical and running the ball at Cincinnati. That's not going to change, but it gives them maybe an opportunity to do some different things. And I, you know, I, I, I've always thought Longo is a really good offensive coordinator. Really? Oh yeah. And, and they, and they've run the ball effectively. Um, You know, and last year, probably not as effectively as others because Drake may was the leading rusher from North Carolina last year, but I, I give it a good chance, but I do with this caveat. You do, you do give Illinois a chance, especially with Bielema there, to be the new Wisconsin yeah. and to have it really work for them. Yeah. Uh, so you know, but that could make it fun. That could, you know, that's just going to heighten the competition. Yeah, and that's exactly what Bielema did. I mean, it's the most mm-hmm. obvious game plan in 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 recent college football history for a revival, right? For for a generation, we saw teams turn their fortunes by by spread and tempo being the equalizer. Bielma went to Illinois, turned them into exactly what he did at Wisconsin, and it worked almost instantly. Like in um, again, if you if you look at Illinois, they have. Uh, Big Johnny Newton, who's going to be a, a first-round pick at defensive tackle, maybe the best defensive tackle in the country, and they have another good set of corners. So their identity is going to uh, is going to remain there. And, and credit Brett for sticking to his guns. That game plan did not work at Arkansas, to be to be clear. It wasn't terrible at Arkansas, but it didn't work clearly. Might, so, might have been might have been mistimed. Yes, you know, uh, yes. It, it almost came along at the time when the SEC was. Um, was evolving into being a little bit more wide open and they weren't able to be different enough. And there were still enough guys at other programs in the SEC that didn't mind handling the, you know, handling the Bielema style ball. So, yeah. Um, it, in this, this point, I think uh, has, has gotten lost a little bit. Not only did Illinois turn into Wisconsin, but really Michigan has, has turned into Wisconsin and, that is the game plan that Jim Harbaugh went to. Now they sort of turned into Stanford too, right? Like which are which are similar archetypes when, when it comes when it comes down to it. But basically, Michigan decided they were going to play, you know, synchronized all three phase football where they smash mouth you to pieces. Um, and it's no surprising that the the most difficult Big Ten game that Michigan had last year was Illinois. Because it was a, it was a little bit like looking in the mirror, and they needed a late field goal to uh, to win. But the the common denominator there is the uh, is is the strength coach uh, Ben Herbert is was Bielma's strength coach at both Wisconsin and Arkansas. He came in a few years in at Michigan, and if you look at when things started to change, it they started to change once Herbert got a hold of things and they started to push in that direction and that identity. And if you talk to people in the Michigan program, they will tell you he is perhaps the most important coach on staff other than Jim Harbaugh. And so it's not a surprise that Tank Wright, director of football strength and conditioning at Illinois, is the the direct descendant of that tree. So this is a different tree than Wisconsin is going to be on. I apologize and will likely get mocked for a long strength coach rant, but that's a little bit of how the identities <laughs> of these programs form. You know what? Well, you're not going to get mocked because you're talking about the preseason number one team in the country, the Michigan Wolverines. Ooh. Ooh. Just, you know, I just like to throw that out there because it just infuriates the Georgia people <laughs> so, so very much. Do you know who that but might be the second we, best tight end in the country? Behind Brock Bowers? Guy at Michigan, right? Colson Loveland. Pride of Idaho. 
Pride, the pride of where? Where is he from? He's from Idaho. I don't know the name of the town. It's it's still July, so you got to forgive me on some of this stuff. Yeah, that's um, okay. Yeah, we'll 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 have we'll uh, my Idaho we'll recruiting chops just aren't what they uh, just. Oh, he's from Gooding. He's from Gooding. Gooding. Gooding High School. Um, I don't know if it was eight man or not. I hope I hope it was. Um, but yeah, Colson Loveland, they uh, they really feel like at Michigan Reese can be uh, better than the, the the tight end. Was it Luke Schoonmaker? Who Schoonmaker, was, yeah. Luke yeah, who was drafted very, uh, Connecticut very, kid, right? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. who was who was drafted in the third round, second round? He was pretty good. Like he was a really good Big Ten football player and a high NFL draft pick. And they they feel like there's a little bit more diversity of skill set. Again, Brock Bowers is his own unique sort of ninja. Um, he's not Kyle Pitts physically. I will say this: like Brock Bowers, yeah, we've already made fun of him for not liking grits. Like when he when Rob Gronkowski walks in the room or Kyle Pitts walks in the room, you are like. Mother of mercy, that is a cyborg. Brock Bowers looks like a college football player, but he just doesn't mm. like he is. So the, and this is the knock on Brock Bowers is that he just isn't going to be some like 270 pound specimen who runs a four three. And he's going to have good measurables and good speed, but he just doesn't have like the physical overwhelming mass like you sometimes see at like the very best players at their position. So. That's that's the the one other than the grits, depending on your opinion on grits. That's like the one little knock on him. It, like if people say he's the best tight end prospect in the last decade, he's probably not. It's probably Kyle Pitts. But is d- does he give you more diversity? Yes, he does give you more diversity in, in what he can do. I'll take him. <laughs> yeah, I'll no, take, I mean, I'll, I'll take, I'll I'll take him for sure. Right. You know what, Michigan, another thing too, helping Loveland and helping J.J. McCarthy in that tight end position, staying on the tight end theme, they got the transfer from Indiana too. Uh, Barner, who a lot of people are really high on, A.J. Barner. Some people in Indiana would have told you he was the best player in their program. What's your favorite Big Ten trophy. You know, the Big Ten's got a trophy for everything. It's your they favorite do have Big a trophy, trophy for everything. Um, so I'm not a... Uh, You're not a big trophy a, guy? Not a big trophy guy. Not a big trophy guy. Um, I will... Uh, I, I do have a favorite, though. I just have to find it. Um, it is... Uh, if I can clear these 72 pop-ups off my screen. Um, is it, doesn't one of them have a pig... Floyd of Rosedale. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. See, this is the difference between you and I. You you sat in the studio those Saturday nights and had to know all these trophies when you did the highlights. Like, mm-hmm. I've never covered a uh, Floyd of Rosedale game. I wish I had, but I haven't. So, um, yes, mine is the Floyd of Rosedale because it involves a pig. And, the, you know, one of the great things about college football in this time of year when we're reminded why we love it, it's that you can have a uh, you can have a trophy with a pig and you can score 40 points in the fourth quarter and lose. And that yeah. just does not exist in the National Football League. So we will take our pig. We will take our preposterousness and you can have your like balanced schedule and draft that equalizes everything else. Yeah, Floyd. Uh, Floyd used to be an actual pig. I mean, like actual <laughs> livestock. Way way back in the day, he was supposed to be a traveling pig. That didn't work out. So now it's just a trophy. But much oh, to we're the chagrin, we're going to play for a pig. 
Yeah, that was Iowa and Minnesota. They they did. They they did originally in the 30s when it first started. It was, Floyd was an actual pick. But the best trophy going right now, that's the Iowa-Minnesota rivalry. That's not even Minnesota's best trophy. And I know people are going, oh, here comes Paul Bunyan's axe. No, no. The best trophy Minnesota plays for is against Nebraska, and we're going to see it the opening game. Ooh. The $5, bit, $5 bits of broken chair trophy. Oh, uh, yeah. That, this was a great trophy because it was organic. It was started on the internet by the great uh, Twitter handle Faux Pellini. Yes. And he was going back and forth with Goldie. And he said, how about we, we do this? If we win, you give me $5. If you win, I get to break a chair over your back. So it's $5, bits of broken chair. And as absurd as that sounds, and at first I liked it just because it was goofy. Mm -hmm. But now I just got a message the other day from the people, and neither school sanctions it, and they really should. They should just go ahead and sanction this trophy because they're, they're actually using it for a, for a great cause, Pete. It's, uh, oh, they, they've started, started a charity. There are a couple of people in both of those programs in the back, both of whom we, we've done stories on on College Game Day in the past. Uh, Jack Hoffman, the young man who's a big Nebraska fan, kid yep. who has battled cancer, um, is going through a latest round of treatment. And, of course, uh, Casey O'Brien, who is sure. um, you know, the, the player at Minnesota for P.J. Fleck. So they're using the trophy as as a way to bring awareness and raise money. And they had reached out to me about that because they knew that I'm a big fan of of the absurdity of the trophy. And they recognize that too. And it's fun. And it, you know, I guess the the hoity toity people. The second time I've used hoity toity in this podcast. That's weird. Hmm. But the, uh, the suits, I'll say it that way. The administration suits got all bent out of shape because it wasn't an official trophy. But they're doing a really good thing here. So uh, glad to bring a, a little attention to that. Can I read you, you like the hilariously sober accounting of that trophy on an M Live uh, aggregation of top Big Ten trophies? Yes. <clears throat> A trophy that started via a Twitter wager between a mascot account and parody account has been begrudgingly accepted by the two schools, if not actively promoted. The original trophy was so beloved that it was misplaced, requiring a new one to be made. <laughs> that was actually misplaced. <laughs> and unlike the famous Bob Diaco conflict oh. trophy between between Connecticut and UCF. The civil conflict. The trophy ever. Yeah. The civil conflict. Oh. That was what do you think of the what do you think of the new Schnellenberger trophy, the Schnellenberger Boots trophy that Miami and Louisville are gonna play for? So I like it because Schnellenberger is one of those just like quintessential college football characters. And he obviously meant so much to both those programs. Um so yeah, a, a fitting tribute to uh, a coach. Is he in the Hall of Fame yet? There was a big push a couple he, years. He, he's he's not, Pete, because he didn't win. He's just under the 60% threshold oh. for being eligible to be into the Hall of Fame. And we, um, I'm involved with that, and we get a lot of push um, every year from a lot of people, and I understand why. But, you know, the Hall of Fame has uh, – you know, has in the National Football Foundation has set the threshold, and he's not he's not qualified for it at at this point in time. Could he get the, in as like an innovator or something? I, you know, that's that's interesting. I mean, there it's sort of different from bringing them in the Hall of Fame, but I think that um, I think that certainly a contributor that would be that would yeah. be something uh, something that would be 
reasonable as well. I, I hesitate to tell this story because there's there there's some sensitivity around uh, around what was clearly a joke that Howard made year years ago, um, this day and age. But but I was doing a Fort Atlantic game when he was there, and he had revived the program. Another of my Thursday night travels. And we're, we're sitting in his office and we're talking about the game. And then, you know, obviously the conversation turns to the days at Miami and, and his career. And I said, Howard, have you ever just thought about what things might have been like if you just hadn't left Miami? He sort of sat back in his chair and he said, you know, didn't have a pipe going. I wish he had. That would make the story. That would make the story perfect. Be sat the back in his chair. Away, Reese. Yeah, takes a deep breath and goes, "No, I spend precious little time contemplating and looking back over various career decisions I've made in my life. For if I did." I feel certain I would shoot myself before morning. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I know there's some sensitivity about joking about such things, but I mean, he was, he, he led me down the path of thinking he was giving me this big thing. I stay in the precious present and all of that kind of stuff. And, and he you know, basically said, yeah, I got it. I probably should have stayed at Miami. You know, so, <laughs> Oh, that might not have That's been good. the only one he, he was talking about, but he was a, he was a character for sure. So it's nice that they're, they're remembering because he was certainly, um, certainly important. You know, he built Miami, and then he certainly had some great, uh, great run at Louisville as well. Before, before we get out of here, you were talking about, uh, we talked about the media days coming up. Reflection quickly on, on your time around Alabama at SEC media days, like trying to get that saltiness and edge back. And I noticed that Nick said he didn't think he did a very good job getting the most out of the team last year because they lost two whole games. But I understand what he means. I, you know, he's he's a not a results-oriented guy, process-oriented guy, and just things like, you know, not getting off the field in the clutch against both Tennessee and LSU, almost letting Texas A&M and, and Ole Miss, um, you know, pull games out against them. Just one one of those years, and now they're now they're sort of changed. I wouldn't say changing identity, but maybe recalibrating uh, identity to a little bit more of a physical edge, that kind of thing. Yes. So it was interesting that Nick Saban's sort of new coordinator talk was not the more shot play, more aggressive coordinator trope that we were uh, we were kind of parroting uh, on the last episode. He brought up. Um, a very specific scenario. And it, it was poignant because it was like Alabama versus Georgia. So, and again, you cover a million games. Some you remember more than others. Uh, I did not remember uh, for no particular reason that with 10 minutes to go in the Alabama-Georgia national title game, Alabama was up 18-13. So mm -hmm. he remembered the time. He remembered the score. And then he basically said, in the next two drives, they hammered the ball down our throat. Now, he was wrong. In the next drive, they passed it a bunch of times. In the following drive, Georgia pounded the rock in a very methodical way. And, of course, if you're a coach running out of time to win the game, though, you know, every every run for first down, like, pierces part of your soul, considering the stage and the stakes, et cetera. So 
when it was pretty telling of all the sequences that Nick Saban could have pointed to what his offense desires to be like. He pointed to the Alabama-Georgia national title game, and Georgia went up 19-18 on, on the first drive of that. So they're down 18-13. They obviously must have missed the conversion. And then Alabama went three and out, which was uh, a run for loss of two and then two incomplete passes. So I'm sure that run for loss of two, putting him behind the chains, sticks in Nick Saban's mind. And then Georgia's drive, which essentially sealed that title game before a pick six, was... James Cook run for four, Zamir Wright run for seven, Zamir Wright, I'm sorry, Zamir White run. I'm jamming my words together here. So Zamir runs three times, seven, five, seven, an incomplete pass with a pass interference on Kool-Aid McKinstry, another Zamir run for seven, and then a James Cook run for two, and then the drive ends with Brock Bowers catching a 15-yard touchdown pass. So it's basically a drive with one completed pass and then a PI in it. So in Nick Saban's mind, of all the things he could sort of say, this is why Georgia's winning and what we need to get back to, uh, and this was in the, uh, this wasn't on the podium, this was in the room with ESPN.com, he picked that very finite moment. And I just thought, if you want a window into what Nick Saban's thinking the 2023 Tide could be like, and they have a great right side of their offensive line, They have Tommy Reese, who's innovative and has been successful in the run game. And quite frankly, he's been successful without great skill on the outside. Alabama has very good skill on the outside. I don't think they have great skill on the outside. And obviously, they have a question at quarterback. So is this going to be? And then he referenced Greg McElroy, our wonderful colleague, who is a great college quarterback, but maybe limited in the pass game. So if you want to see what Alabama could look like, Reference Greg McElroy era Alabama, which was smash, smash, smash. And then that little Georgia sequence that we just talked about. So anyway, that was my takeaway from Nick Saban. Uh, other than that, he liked carrot cake, um, which I'm fine with carrot cake, but I'm not like running to the front of the line for carrot cake. I well, thought that was cake, the cream cheese frosting makes the carrot cake. Yeah, sure. But like if you have your choice of cakes, are you really going to get carrot cake? No. Yeah. No, I mean I like carrot cake. Yeah. If it's there, I'm I'm delighted that it's there. Happy but, to have. Know, I'm not yeah. not not going to the front. I you know what I'll be I'll be a little surprised if they go back that exclusively to that type of running game um, that you saw in the McElroy era. And far be it for me to disagree with Nick, but I I think he even knows you can't win at the elite level the way they won in 2009. Now, Greg was hurt. People, you know, people talk about uh, McCoy being hurt in that game. McElroy's playing with broken ribs. So they threw for 50 yards or some such thing and still beat Texas. You can't do that anymore. And I, but I do think things like they haven't been as good as they used, used to be on third and short. And I think that's dating dating back several years or being able to put the game away by running the ball after you've gotten a lead. And I would say that that and maybe, um, and, and maybe the inability to get the clutch stop defensively, which, you know, some old school defensive coaches, which Nick certainly is in a lot of ways, though he's innovative and smart believes in that toughness. And sometimes when you throw the ball all around, you've got everybody spread out, 
it inevitably shows up on the other side of the ball, too, if you're trying to stop the run in the clutch. I think that all of those things will be something that they emphasize this year. The question is, will they be good enough to do it? I, I think I think Alabama and Clemson both may be a year away from national championship type uh not expectation because they're always going to have that, but national championship caliber going into the season. Not that they, either team couldn't win it. They certainly could. They're talented enough. But I think both those teams might even be better next year, at least in terms of uh, what you would expect, proven talent, uh, quarterback settled, uh, offensive coordinators settled in, all of those types of things I think might, might bode well. And, yeah, you know what? That might even go for Ohio State, too. You know, the three, the three dominant programs – of, of recent years overall. Let me ask you, Reese Davis, Alabama graduate, two Alabama questions, and we can close on these. One is, okay. bold prediction right now, Middle Tennessee State, Alabama receives the kick. Who runs out and takes the first snap for the Crimson Tide this year? Need a little more information, but I'm going to surprise you and say Jalen Milrow. Mm-hmm. Very reasonable. Um, very reason. I think three guys have a legit chance, right? A lot of these quarterback races, when I'm talking to coaches this time of year, they're like, oh, yeah, this guy, this guy. All right, who's your, oh, yeah, well, it's going to be this guy. We all know. I don't think that has that. And Nick Saban made this big long cake analogy. Like, I don't think they've baked that mm-hmm. yet. I think that I think the ambiguity is real at, uh, at Alabama. We'll I, I do, this. too. And, and I will say this. If if it's I, I may be wrong, if it's Tyler Buckner, the Notre Dame transfer my perception will be that he went in and flat won the job. Mm-hmm. You know, Milrow, and the I, room it, race. I, I think yeah, he's probably flat. the best quarterback and the most experienced quarterback. But mm-hmm. like, I remember when Russell Wilson transferred to Wisconsin, they named him a captain two days later. Does Tyler Buckner right. have that gravitas in a locker room of college football's alphas to go in and establish himself as a leader and a person? in that time frame that because he hasn't practiced once so mm-hmm. that's hard and that's not mm-hmm. I, I don't have a judgment whether tyler buckner can or can't do that i don't know enough but like I that's agree. i don't even, that's just yeah. that's just generally difficult and i bring up russell wilson because he's a pretty rare bird right mm-hmm. um and also that the quarterback room at wisconsin I, I can't name who else was in it so like it, you know it was probably a little lighter field um yeah i called russell's first game at uh at wisconsin against unlv thursday night and uh being there that week it was clear that he had he had taken over and obviously he had great credibility from his time at north carolina state Mm -hmm. but i I don't (laughs) i don't recall who his backup was that night either i probably should but i don't um but yeah i i I think when i say melrose if that's the situation, one or both of the others will probably be slated for playing time. Uh, I would be, I'd probably be a little surprised if it's clear cut. He had flat won the job and the others are functioning clearly as backups. If Buckner runs out there first, given all the things you brought up, then that probably happened. He went in, won the job, won the locker room, and is clearly the the best guy. So uh, it'll be It'll, I think we won't know for sure who their quarterback is long-term until after the next week, after they play Texas. All right, we'll close with this because I actually have a flight I have to run to. If you had to set Vegas line odds on the number of seasons Nick Saban, who turns 72 on Halloween, has left as the Crimson Tide coach, what would you set the over-under on? Four and a half. 
four and a half. Wow. So that would mean we'd see in an under scenario, 76 year old Nick Saban on the sideline, four and a half. Mm-hmm. All right. Because well, uh, I've said this before, and I'll, I'll leave you with this. It yeah. chips away at most everybody else. And I think that Nick's human. There is a there's a possibility that he's looking at other things that that he could do and do extraordinarily well. He'd be he'd be great on television. He's already been great on television when he when he joins us as guest. He'd be fantastic. But he needs this like normal human beings need oxygen. And I feel like he might suffocate without it. And so yeah. I, his health is, as far as I know, is yeah. really good. His drive is certainly just fine. And, uh, and I, think, I think he just relishes everything about it, from impacting, uh, impacting players to designing defense, from demanding excellence to, uh, you know, to being able to use his platform in other areas of business. I, I think he needs it like he needs oxygen. So I, for a man that age, I set the number pretty high at four and a half. There's your answer. There's your answer. I would bet the under. It's an educated, educated guess. I just, you know, 76 is, you know, that's it. It'd be interesting. But I do think it, there's no accurate way to predict that because the results of the upcoming seasons will have a huge impact on absolutely. So this yeah. is all just hypothetical July podcasting more than anything. But I do still think that's it's what, it's interesting. Yeah. That's what he always says when he yeah. doesn't. Sure. When I, when I no longer when I'm not being an asset to the organization, I uh, then, uh, you know, that'll be the time, you know? So when he, when he feels like he's not getting the most out of players, he's not, um, you know, they're not responding. That'll be the time, whenever that is, whether he's, you know, 72 or 82, you know, whenever, whenever that time comes. His hand movements were like, he's still 45. I mean, he was really like, you know, he was (laughs) synchronized. It was, it was impressive. Well, that's the thing you would never guess if you no. didn't know, if you didn't follow college football, you yeah. say, how old is this man? You wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't say that. Yes. Know? Anyway, yeah. you think he's 60. So, yeah, we want you him for as long catch- as possible, by the way, like keep rolling, man. It's no fun doubt, to cover man. the greats, like the, just yeah. the true greats. So he's, he's, he's a, he's the greatest coach who's ever coached in college football up to this point, my judgment. So, yeah, I don't I mean, disagree because I make I make the Georgia people mad. I'll make the LSU people mad too, and I'll, I'll leave it with this: for all of the wonderful, fantastic things that he's done at Alabama, unprecedented dynasty at Alabama, he did the one thing that hadn't been done in a hundred years, one hundred twenty years of college football. He fixed LSU. Yeah, he took he, he dysfunction junction and fixed it. Yeah, he and and he fixed it for people after him. Too, yes. which is which is pretty remarkable, and that's uh, that alone ought to get you in the Hall of Fame, and yes. uh, and it will, and yeah. all of it I will. He, I think he's past that sixty percent clip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He has no words. He's a nose hair that. above. So. <laughs> yeah, he's good. Pete, enjoy media days, man. Always fun. We'll crank this up more often as time goes along. Thanks for listening to the College Game Day podcast. Download this where you prefer to get your podcast. 